0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Parents have always cared about what their kids are learning in school, but education debates seem to have become explosive in the last couple of years. All over the country, parent groups have introduced bills that try to control and restrict what children learn, especially around the issues of race, history, and LGBTQ identity.
1: Do I want more parents involved in PTA, Do I want them to run for school board? Yes, why did they run for school board when there were other issues that were going on? Why is the school board important now?
0: In today's episode, parents who are also educators, researchers, and writers try to shed some light on where this flood of activism is coming from and what impact it might be having. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the 2022 Aspen Ideas Festival. The panelists are theology professor Esau McCauley, researcher Renee DeResta, and writer David French. The conversation was moderated by New York Times opinion writer and podcast host Jane Kostin and was held on June 27th. Here's Kostin
2: For many people, the debate over education, and that is the loosest and possible way to say that, the debate such as it exists over What kids learn and how they learn it really began for a lot of people in 2020. What happened?
3: Yeah, so that's a really interesting and and complicated question because there was a small, a a medium-sized thing that happened, and when I say and when I talk about the medium-sized thing, you're going to think that wasn't medium-sized, but then there was a huge thing that happened mainly on the right that took a lot of people by surprise in this country. So after the um, after the murder of George Floyd, you know, we had this wave of national reckoning, of which part of it, part of that national reckoning is what are we doing in education around race? Okay, so what the reason I say medium is that was only part of the conversation. A, a huge other part of the conversation was around police brutality and, and police tactics. And that really was kind of the front line of the policy conversation after the George Floyd's murder. But there was also more emphasis and more focus and more conversation around um, race. Now, if you look at Google Trends and you search for critical race theory uh, on Google Trends, what you'll see is this, it's just nobody searching for that term for years. Like nobody's searching for that term. And then in the summer of 2020, you see this kind of bump, just a modest bump. But then in the fall of 2021, you see it rocket through the stratosphere. What happened in the fall of 2021? Was there some sort of huge nation-shaking event? No, it was a right-wing media generated uh, drive for outrage to mobilize parents and families around the idea that this concept called critical race theory was being taught to everyone from your second grader to your 12th grader and beyond, and it was dominating American education. And why was Google search going like just through the roof? Because nobody had heard of critical race theory. Nobody knew what it was. And so, what began happening is then activists filled in the breach, and they said, Well, and, and you can see this, this is actually one of the lead activists on this, a guy named Chris Rufo, who said, You know, look, here's what critical race theory is it's basically anything you hear about race you don't like. And he said it, I mean, am I making this up? No, I'm not making this up. It's basically anything you don't like about race. And so essentially what began to happen was you would have these anecdotes of things that you might see in some corporate PowerPoint or in a school 500 miles away that would be legitimately troubling to me. But then the argument was this is everywhere. And so parents began reacting volcanically to this concept that there's critical race theory everywhere, to the point where people were finding it in places where it just flat out didn't exist. So there was this moment where Moms for Liberty, a rather ironically named group, uh, right down the street in my county, in Williamson County, Tennessee, not finding critical race theory anywhere, decided to try to ban an early high school education, I mean, early elementary education, the book Ruby Bridges Goes to School by Ruby Bridges. And what was one of the problems with the book? It had Norman Rockwell's painting of Ruby Bridges desegregating schools in Louisiana. And that was critical race theory. Why was it critical race theory? Because it betrayed white people in a bad light. And so you began to see a proliferation of these anti-CRT bills, which then activated my civil libertarian instincts of whoa here we have got free we've got speech codes being enacted in schools and states across the country and i don't i'm already taking too much time because and i haven't even gotten into book banning but that's the that's what sort of started the whole
4: we um one of the things that we look at and my professional job is is how the narrative spread and as this was happening this idea of critical race theory became a meme right And so it propagates across communities of people on social media. This is not a knock against social media. This is just what social media is particularly good for. It's good for networked activism. And so as we saw this term take shape, it wasn't only people searching for Google. Once they had some conceptualization, one of the problems with Google is it can only return results that it has. And so there is this area where if, right-wing media or any incentivized group, really, to choose us to produce the content that fills in the void, that is what people see, and then that, in turn, is what they share. And so there was also this mass commensurate sharing where, again, 14 million hits for critical race theory in April of 2021 uh, on on Facebook using a tool called CrowdTangle. Again, we can measure these things quite quantitatively at this point. And so that's what we see, we see this, these articles that begin to be written about it then in turn go viral, and we say go viral very passively. Go viral means people choose to propagate the content, right? People choose to share it. And so there's also this dynamic where people influence their friends, and you see really the creation of communities. You see Facebook groups spring up in opposition to this, and then you have many people who... Uh, feel angry. And, you know, I think there's one other thing that happened in those years, which was the pandemic. So you also had people who, you know, in many parts of the country, their kids had been out of school. Parents were, you know, feeling extremely angry and, um, you know, feeling that they had, uh, you know, wire bars reopening, but not my kid's school. There was a lot of just anger and outrage, I think, among the parent community in general at that time. And so you have the creation of these homogeneous communities on social media where people kind of continue to rile each other up, and then that activism really doesn't stay confined to the internet, it, it explodes into things like school board meetings and, uh, and, and community town halls and things like this, which generates further media engagement, which then in turn is returned for, um, for kind of the, the continued propagation of the content and the narrative, and this is the sort of cycle that happens. Um, it's not unique to critical race theory, but that was one that was particularly you know, prominent during that time
1: is also the matter of racism.
2: Right, I was just about to <laughs> so, say that like um, so, this isn't 2020 yeah, isn't so, the first so time people one, started asking questions about what they were learning so, about the history of racism.
1: So there is a long history of, and I say this as a Christian, of Christian response to pushes for justice, using their kids to cloak for racism. So you look during the time of integration and the, it was parents and the White Citizen Council and all of these groups were saying, integration is bad for our children. And so oftentimes children function as this buffer that you can allow the safety of children to be a means by which you disengage and having to do your own internal self-reflection. And so I don't think that it is To me, terribly surprising, given the history of racial progress, followed by backlash to say after the two Obama presidencies and after the back end, towards the back end of what became the Trump presidency, when you have an unprecedented, I mean, not unprecedented, because it's precedented, you have yet another manifestation of anti black and anti Asian racism. And you have this particular moment after George Floyd where the whole country is focusing on how we can in this evil that's ongoing. And the fact that there was a backlash after that is not a surprise to anyone who knows history. And so the idea that after those events and after the the four years in particular of the Trump presidency, that we as a country decided that we were going to debate how we talk about race, to me is a manifestation of our inability to to face those issues. And so I think that um, one of the things that we were talking about before this, this panel Began is that if you look back at Brown versus Board of Education, I've been thinking about a lot, is that you have massive resistance after Brown is passed, and then you have um, after that the rise of Christian schools. A lot of Christian schools, not all of them in the South, in the 1960s are formed precisely to begin to prevent integration and to form their children, and so you have kind of this another racial reckoning and then you have a reason not to ad- address race. And so I see this as another attempt to change the conversation. I th- it could be Tony Morrison, or someone else, who said one of the purposes of racism is distraction. And I consider most of this is a massive dis- distraction keeping us from having the important conversation that leads to racial transformation and justice.
2: Of course, the history of public education in this country in part begins with, one, parents being concerned that their children will be influenced by Catholics, which I went to 13 years of Catholic school, so I get it. Um, (laughs) But also, you know, efforts to curtail the influence that any kind of cultural or socio-political change could have on their children. I, I've always been struck by some of the signs you saw during Brown versus Board of Education at protests against integration because so many of them are about how this will inev- inevitably lead to miscegenation and me and so but I, I want to go back a little bit further in that history of public education because ISA, this is even beyond is- issues of race, what are children learn and what and how they learn it has always been incredibly controversial for for people. Yeah. You, you go, um, I think that David might remember a little uh, government program called Common Core, um, which um, it became lightly controversial. But you know, if you think about No Child Left Behind, if you think about even the last twenty to twenty-five years of education policy, those have been incredibly contentious. And then to have the added element of how we talk about both the worst elements of American history and how we talk about how how we all got here and why we are in different states of socio-political economic achievement. That's not new, but I'm curious, Issa, if you can give give us a little bit more of the history and tell us kind of how have these conversations been shaped and how how have we tried to move forward through those conversations in the past?
1: I think that... A lot of it, interestingly enough, has been through the activity, through the, I think about, I grew up in an inner city um, public high school where a lot of the times the books didn't even, like, it's interesting we have, sorry, this may seem like a, a rabbit trail, but even the idea that we're, focusing on how race is discussed in classrooms. The amount of times I'd be in class and the textbook in front of me didn't actually deal with issues like slavery in a way that was at all authentic. And so historically, most transformative educational experiences have been through teachers who went above and beyond what was in the textbook and found resources that were transformative. And so the fact that we're now um, hyper-policing that activity gets to the idea that I think that people do see, rightfully so, that oftentimes it's individual teachers who make the decision that I care about how students perceive themselves in the world. And so I guess what I would suggest is that a lot of the ways which change has been brought about has been through, despite all the things that are um, standing <coughs> in front of teachers, overworked, underpaid, understaffed, it's been through their sacrifice that has created students who then go off into the world and do the things that they do.
3: You know, one, one thing that I think is super important about his, this historical argument is there's always been an and behind reading, writing, arithmetic. So right. what, yeah. what's the purpose of education? A lot of people say, well, reading, writing, arithmetic, and Protestantism. So therefore the Blaine Amendments are gonna cut off the sectarian right. schools, and what did sectarian mean? It meant Catholic. Reading, writing, and race. Um, reading, writing, and politics, or ideology, or nationalism, and this gets to, for example, the West Virginia v. Barnett case mm-hmm. from 1943, one of the greatest Supreme Court cases in history, where the state of West Virginia was forcing all students to say the pledge, and even in the middle of World War II, the court said, no, you can't force someone to articulate a belief that they don't hold. I didn't make it to Alabama.
1: I said the pledge, school. <laughs> no, anyways, go ahead. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, but there's always reading, writing, and and, and one of the things that the Supreme Court has said that hardly ever gets into the conversation, but I think should be in the conversation when it comes to education, both public and private, is that in a case called um, Island Free uh, School District versus PICO, the court said, no, you don't have total discretion to knock out any books out of a library that you wanna knock out. So you can't say our library's not gonna have Republican books, it's not gonna have Democrat books, it's not gonna have books by black authors, or you name it. And because then it goes on to say, one of the purposes of public education, and I think this should be extended education period, whether you're homeschooled or public educated or private educated, is to prepare citizens for participation in our pluralistic, often contentious society. And when you think about reading, writing, and pluralism, that's a very different construct than reading, writing, and whatever, reproducing me. (laughs) which is the way we often, and the way parents sadly often think of education, reading, writing, and more of me. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up that Barnett case, which is actually one of my favorite religious freedom cases, that, and the Church of Lakumi Babalu IA, which is uh, a Supreme Court case about a church that practiced Santeria, and in the, a, the local area attempted to make it illegal to do some of their religious practices, and I believe that the justices de- determined in their majority opinion that and, and I'm not going to quote here, but um, that essentially your religion doesn't need to make sense to us to have you be free to practice it, <laughs> which I've always appreciated. It's, it's always minority religions like Jehovah's Witnesses or people who practice animism or Santeria that are the most interesting religious freedom questions for I think, for the courts, but I, I, a
3: shocking number of your free speech rights to Jehovah's Witnesses.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, and, but I, I think I'm curious, because. I keep saying I'm curious because I am, but I'm trying to be less repetitive. Yeah. But Renee, when we're talking about parents' rights, whose rights are we talking about? Which parents?
4: Oh, I don't know why that's a question for me. I mean, I'm not a parent's rights. Uh, I, I think that, here's, here's the problem with the phrase parents' rights. I think it's come to mean um, a very particular perception that people have about conservative parents advocating for things. I think actually that this is really a failing of Democrats and progressives to take on that mantle and say we have rights too and we want to advocate for particular rights that we support, that we, you know. I, I think that seeding the rhetorical ground and letting parental rights be framed as some kind of right-wing construct is actually really uh, just, just absolutely terrible uh, in this particular environment as the, Again, this this kind of tinderbox of activism has been tapped into so effectively, by politicians, um, particularly populist politicians, who want to continue to rile up communities by, again, tapping into that rage that parents, in my opinion, actually quite rightly feel after the way the pandemic was you know, was, was managed in certain states. Now, I lived in San Francisco during the pandemic, and so San Francisco is blue and bluer. It is not, you know, there, there was a lot of backlash to the way that our school board handled things, but it was not, I think, particularly reflective of the kinds of dynamics that were taking shape elsewhere in the country. Um, I think that that momentum of an, an extremely outraged group of people getting together and saying, we are going to make a change, we are gonna advocate for the things that we want to see happen for our kids, I think that is a universal perspective of, that, that parents hold because if we don't do it, who is going to? Right? Do we trust the politicians to do it? We certainly didn't in San Francisco, which is how we recalled three members of the school board. And so there is this, I think, dynamic where parents are saying, we are going to have a voice in this conversation. And I think that it is, it is unfortunate to me that that is increasingly seen as a right-wing construct or a right-wing phenomenon, because every parent should be weighing in. Every parent should be an activist in their community advocating for their children and their children's community and that's what I think the, the parental rights movement, you know, I don't even like calling it parental rights right. movement. but <laughs> The people who were, acti- you know, who were agitating for change in San Francisco were an extraordinarily diverse coalition of Democrats arguing against a different diverse coalition of Democrats around particular issues that we saw as issues of competence which were really distinctly different than what I think was seen as uh, the kind of culture war dynamic that was taking shape elsewhere in the country.
1: My mom was the first single mother elected to the school board in our city and maybe one of the first African-American female presidents of the PTA in Alabama. I don't know the second one. And one of the shocking things is I was doing some Google research for this panel, on the Parents' Bill of Rights. And one of the things it says, meeting with teachers is a right of parents. And I was like, this is complete, I mean, they, PTAs have been begging parents to come to these meetings over and over again, It's so like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Or like, you need to meet with parents. In other words, I think that there is a general apathy that happens a lot, because my mom did this in Alabama. Getting parents to actually be engaged in yeah. the education of their children has historically been a problem. So if the issue isn't actually access, the issue within what is actually going on, and that's the reason why I think it is very important to say not just what happens, but when does something happen. And And the fact that we're focusing on parental rights now in the context of racial reckoning says that yes, it is generally the case that as a parent, I am supremely interested in what my children are taught, and I tried to engage that, and parents should care about those things, that's true. But the fact that we're talking about it now, in the same way that you can say, and, and, and I don't wanna throw all Christian schools under the bus, there's tons of Christian schools that before and after this period, but if you, you can sometimes go to states and say, why did your school start in 1956? Right. Mm. Why did you decide to do it at that point? You need to. It's
2: a like if you put then. up a Confederate memorial in 1924.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so, I have questions. I have questions. <laughs> and so what, I, when I, what I'm saying is, I am suspicious of parents' rights when they're talking about race in the context of patent anti-black racism, and the effect is the limitation of that conversation. So you cluster those two things, all of those things together, then we're having a different conversation. You wanna say, do I want more parents involved in PTA? Do I want them to run for school board? Yes, why did they run for school board when there were other issues that were going on? Why, why is the school board important now?
4: I, I completely it. agree. And I
1: I, it's rigorous agreement, is probably. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it really was, you know, again, for, I'll just you know, I'll speak to San Francisco, because that's what I know. Um, our schools were closed for two years, two years. Mm-hmm. My kid got 90 minutes a day of virtual first grade, he got seven half days of in-person first grade, he lost half of kindergarten, and parents like me were saying, my kid can't read. Who, how, and I, as a as a professional woman, of course, I was able, to, I could teach him math, I didn't, feel, I didn't feel able to teach him reading. And so my sister's a teacher in Baltimore, and I said, Lauren, what can I give him? What curriculum can I give him? You know, we're, we're all really struggling here. And the thing that was so profound about it was we were asking the school board, like, what should we be doing? What can we be doing? And we were told, like, just sit down and be quiet. You know, parents started self-organizing and saying we're gonna create pods. Because I have, again, three kids. I had a newborn at the time. I have a full-time job. My husband has a full-time job. And even so, I can still, I have enough means to put my kid into extra virtual classes to supplement his 90 minutes a day of first grade. And not everybody has those means, and so parents were trying to say like, hey, let's all work together, let's all form communities, let's form groups. And then we were being assailed as like racists and elitists for trying to do that. The city set up groups when the school district failed, because San Francisco, the mayor doesn't control the school board, it's a separate organizational structure. So the city set up pods for working families, particularly low-income families, where the parents still had to physically go into work, right? I was privileged enough to work from home. Um, And the school board members critiqued the city, arguing that the city was trying to seize power from the district. You know, we had a surreal set of conversations and that was what precipitated the recalls. And it was really that outrage, that feeling that You know, nobody was listening and everybody was struggling. And that, I think, was, like, where that momentum came from in our our city. And I I have a hard time tying it to what was happening nationally. I still wrestle with this, and we were kind of talking about that in the beginning. I mean, I'd love to hear how you think it fits. I think think
1: it's hard because there was a lot going on. I mean, the pandemic is ongoing, but I'm talking about, like, I don't know, whatever way that was there was a lot going on because you could talk, you can have an exclusive conversation around school shutdowns, which I do think that there is a conversation there. Then there's the conversation about CRT, and then there's the conversation about like the anti-Asian racism, so in other words- then the LGBT. LGBT community and what's going on around the sexual discussion, um, sexual identity discussions, and so all of four of those things, and so you can pull out and say, are there a variety of debates around like, opening and closing schools that are detached from the history of race in America? Probably. But when you get to some of the particular issues that maybe were igniting my emotions, that was probably my lane, because I, I, trust me, I could complain right alongside with you, because I was, teaching online with children who are online education as a professor at the same time. And it was utter chaos.
3: And I'm living in a part of the country that treated the pandemic as if it surrendered on the deck of the USS Missouri in June of 2020. So totally different. And and this brings up, I think, a really important point. There's two signs of, uh, to me, there's two signs of real dysfunction. You know when things are going off the rails. And one, one sign is, When you reach a point where we kind of have this rule of modern politics is that every extreme has to be answered by an equal and opposite extreme, where there isn't sort of a rule of reason that comes in. You've either gotta be for parents' rights or all for the total authority of the professional administrator. Whoa, 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 isn't this long been a kind of a give and take? And then here's another sign of dysfunction. When you start fighting national political fights with, through local politics, yeah. you know, I remember during the recall, you guys were called Fox News. Oh yes.: <laughs> You know, in San Francisco, like Fox yes. has so much sway in San Francisco. And, and where I am, why were people so outraged about CRT in Williamson County, Tennessee? Now, there's two answers to this. One is, there's a long legacy in Williamson County, Tennessee, of racism. A long legacy. Uh, there was this terrible moment in the local school board meeting where one of the key meetings where they're talking about the anti-CRT, um, you know, the tr- attempt to ban Ruby Bridges, and, and a man gets up, and he's, he's, was, he was basically like me. So he, he's a white guy, but he's a, he has a, a family with, that's a multiracial family through adoption. He says, look, I drive uh, my son to school Past, Robert E. Lee Boulevard, or you know, Andrew Jack, I mean, uh, Stonewall Jackson, or whatever the street name, and then there's this statue, it's called, we nickname him Chip, because it's a statue of a Confederate soldier, and his hat is chipped. So his name is Chip, and he dri- I drive by Chip every day, and I'm not asking to tear anything down, I'm not asking to change any name, I'm just asking, in that environment, can he still learn about the fullness of American history? And while he's talking, one of the activist parents yells out, you're in the South! It's like, yeah, yeah, that was kind of redundant. Uh, and and so, so you've got that going on, you've got that going on, and then you've got, well, I saw something that somebody tweeted um, about the San Francisco Unified School District, and by golly, that's not happening here. Well, I have good news for you. It's not happening here.
2: I'm, I'm curious. Um, I did it again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm fascinated by this question because I think it's actually much more interesting to talk about how parents are interacting with one another than it is to set parents versus teachers because many teachers are also parents. Mm -hmm. Um, They're allowed to do that. Um, I believe the the court ruled on that a long time ago. but when I, when I talk to my friends who are both parents and teachers, there's a, real, there's a real sense where these conversations, all of the nuance gets sucked out of the room when we're attempting to have these, especially because it is very easy to put this as evil right-wing parents versus virtuous teachers or evil groomer teachers versus virtuous parents when none of that is true. Yeah. And I, I'm interested to hear from all of you as people who are parents, yeah. as I am not. I have nothing. <laughs> um, but when you're talking to other parents, especially other parents who are going to differ greatly in how their kids, who are in your kid's class, learn about the very same issues. Yeah. I'm curious what those conversations actually look like because <laughs> you know, when you, I was struck by how you know, kind of the anti-LGBT teaching legislation in Florida, which was cast as being like, oh, you're not allowed to talk about gay sex, because apparently if you talk about gay people, that's immediately where you got to go. <laughs> Huge news for gay people. But I just kept thinking, like, in, you know, in Miami, Dade County, how many same-sex couples have kids? How many same-sex couples where one is a teacher have kids? How do these conversations work there? So I'm curious to hear from each of you. When you're having... I want to make this real. When you're having conversations with other parents who differ on these issues, what do those conversations look like? Uh,
1: so I teach, um, and so at a university, but it's similar. And one of the things the universities, parents come as a part of the recruitment process, mm-hmm. and in this context, they ask you questions. because I talk about African American stuff, like how do you teach my kid? And I actually do have conversations with parents, and I do think that this is true about teachers, and I taught in high school before. And the teachers do have a lot of power in how we instruct in our classroom. Right, and I, I think say,
2: everyone has a memory of like a teacher who told them that you're yes. going to be a giant failure. Yes. Every- and then you spend the rest of your life on some sort of Count of Monte Cristo <laughs> act of revenge. That could just be a me thing. Yeah, but.
1: so exactly. And so what I say is, I don't actually believe mm. the teachers should be Switzerland. I think the teachers should have an opinion. Yes. But they shouldn't make that opinion the only thing that is possible in the classroom. And it's actually the job of the teacher to sometimes defend what might be the weakest point you know, in the classroom. And so what I say is I try to give my perspective but also explain the best account of people who differ. And that really comes down to, teach. you can't legislate that. You can put as many rules as you want, but it's really up to the teacher to create a culture in a classroom where people are free to grow. And I think that what I say to parents is, I want your children to have enough confidence in my class to disagree with me. And, and I can judge success as a college professor when students come to my office hours and say, I don't agree with you, but, you talked about me, you talked about the subject in such a way that I feel comfortable asking questions. And I get that all of the time. So I really think it's not about what you say, right? I think it's like what you get space for. Now the tricky part is there are some things that are ruled out of bounds, right? There are things that aren't legitimate discourse. And you say, you know, like, and you have to say in a class, no, no, no that is not actually a viable option. Mm-hmm. And so it's the point of like articulating a consensus in society about what isn't a viable option is actually where the complicated parts come. But oftentimes when I explain to them, I consider this not a viable option, like you just can't say that black people are inferior, like sorry, like yeah. it, it, we're not gonna go back and forth there and if you think that and don't come here. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of things I think are the case, but I think that 95% of the boundaries that that if you articulate them as a teacher, most parents agree with. I think it's oftentimes parents imagine a teacher in their head that doesn't always exist in the classroom. You
3: know, I I think there is a key word that should apply, not just in this discussion, but globally in a lot of ways, grace. Okay, grace. We need to have grace for teachers. We need to have more grace for each other. But treat teachers like human beings instead of fighting over them like I'm turning them to the state powered automaton robot, ideology, ideological robot who's gonna advance the state approved ideology and then we're gonna fight over what that ideology is because it's always gotta be reading, writing, arithmetic and more of my thoughts. And so we need to have grace. I mean, I, when I grew up, I was public school educated in rural Kentucky public schools and one of my favorite teachers, it was like 10th grade, called me a patriotic monkey. Because um, I was a conservative, she was liberal and we were fighting over Cold War stuff. And she said, you're just a patriotic monkey, aren't you? And, and I was a little mad at that. Um, I, but I did not think, I'm going to tell mom and dad. And then I'm going to tell the, the teacher. I mean, I'm going to tell the principal. And then I definitely don't, didn't think I could get a Tucker hit out of this. <laughs> Which you could now, right? Um, I thought, well, okay, it's on now. Let's have a conversation. And things like that prepared me to live in a pluralistic society. And they also, you know, we're human beings. It got heated, so what? You know, we can live through that and get through that. And, and I think we just are living in this world now where we are training our children that if they encounter an idea that makes them feel uncomfortable, they need to appeal to authority to fix it as a problem. And I think that is a terrible thing to do in a diverse, pluralistic country. I think
1: that you're correct when you said it creates the I'll show you. I think it really comes down to there's teachers so I'm, I'm waiting to email, okay. I just want to get a, one more book done. Because <laughs> yeah. you do, there, there's something which doubting creates inspiration. Yeah.
4: yeah. I think um, as far as the, uh, the parent the parent community a lot. So much of it happens on social media, right? It's on Facebook. Um, and so the conversations happen on Facebook with all of the various ways in which, you know, you don't necessarily, per the, the grace point, you assume that the person who has just commented is, has the worst possible intentions, and so you do see the sort of fighting. Um, the moderators have to do a whole lot of work. In San Francisco, this is maybe gonna sound funny, but the hottest fights are actually about eighth grade algebra. <laughs> um, like, we are not fighting it's also over. also were the hottest fights in my household over I didn't want to do eighth grade algebra. <laughs> there is a whole, I mean, again, like I said, funny enough that or I maybe mean, funny is not the adjective, but the, the, um, again, a lot of the areas where the curriculum battles happen outside in the rest of the country, San Francisco does not fight about those, instead we fight about math. Um, but I think in this, this question, though, there were a lot more um, and in San Francisco, the kind of ideological divide is moderate and progressive, uh, and progressive encompasses like the kind of um, democratic socialists. It's sort of, it means like a much further left than I think what hearing progressive might mean in in just uh, kind of average American city. Uh, and then moderate is you know that kind of that line between progressive and and moderate. And so th- this is the sort of the two communities, and they fight a lot. You know, this is the kind of political divide in the city. Um, but I did feel that prior to 2020, it was a much more there was much more willingness to assume that the other party was acting in good faith, and then I think that as people started interrogating things like racism, um, the that national conversation in 2020 did lead to a lot of tension in the parent groups as people began to try to figure out what was, you know, what was an anti-racist practice in, an, in a liberal city, and how would we do this? And then also, you know, candidly, the parent groups oftentimes are people who have time to chat on social media, right? Which is like a particular demographic of parent also.
2: And they're also um, doing this on social media. Yeah, and they're also yeah, doing it on
4: flattening social media. Medium. Exactly, and so the, you know, it, it, it really kind of started to, um, to segregate into progressive parenting groups and moderate parenting mm-hmm. groups. And then activist organizations, again, as the, uh, as the movement to think about how do we handle this district and what we want, um, did, again, continue to split along those lines, and, uh, and, and it really became a question of um, where was the greatest area of activation, where had the parent community kind of moved over that couple of years, and it, it got really much more hostile, and there were a couple moderators in a few of these groups that managed to kind of Um, consistently draw people back to, are you acting in good faith? Are you speaking in good faith? There's a couple of people who I think are, funny enough, teachers actually who are moderators in these groups who are really, uh, teachers who are also parents, um, who are just very good at trying to turn the discourse back into productive or constructive disagreement as opposed to um, just increasing polarization. But at the same time, those forces of polarization that we see throughout the country do in fact take shape even within uh, you know, the sort of narcissism small differences between blue and bluer and and those were some of, I think, uh, the most heated conversations that I saw on social media.
3: One of the things that you saw uh, when uh, DeSantis announced his Stop Woke Act, mm-hmm. which is spectacularly unconstitutional. I so wish I was still practicing lawyer. I'd sue to overturn that and buy a Lamborghini with the proceeds. But the. Well, maybe another Honda Accord, I don't know. But anyway, so it was tactical, it was deliberately aimed. And one of the things that was striking to me about the DeSantis Stop Woke Act is when he did this press release announcing the need for it. Now remember, he's the governor of Florida. He had several bullet, viral incidents of of extreme wokeness that he cited. And some of them were pretty extreme and I was definitely opposed to them. None of them were in Florida, okay? And so this is what I talk about radicalizing people in local politics through national disputes. And so this was very strategic. It is very strategic to this day. They have moved on so much more from the CRT to LGBT issues, to drag queen story hour, for example. There's, and that you just see it each, and it happens on Twitter right in front of your eyes and they will tell you they're doing it. Mm -hmm. They'll tell you they're doing it. Litigation can be a, a, a solution the most extreme stuff. So litigation can be, and there's a lot of litigation going on. The other thing is, you have to have a revolt of the reasonable against the radical.
4: That's it, that's it. Right, so you, you. this is where I was saying like, don't cede the ground on parental rights as a term. It, it just boggles my mind that the Democratic Party has let that happen. And this is where, you know, again, my, my own activism started as like, let's create a pro-vaccine parent movement in California because our vaccination rates in school were at like 36%. Let's create that countervailing force of the reasonable saying, you don't get to dominate the conversation on social media because here we are also, right? And that's where social media is, it is a phenomenal tool for organizing. It is also a phenomenal tool for generating outrage about the most extreme random examples. And the only countervailing force to that is is owning share of voice as, another, as, a, as a, counter, a counter argument to the conversation. It doesn't mean you like, get to win. You know, it takes time to grow those movements. It takes time to build those networks. But this is, I think, a really important thing, like growing a countervail, you know, the, the, the silent majority often chooses not to speak in social media because they'll be attacked, either from their own side or from the opposite side, and so they stay silent. And that just doesn't work in the environment that we're in today.
1: I think there has to be a record. In other words, maybe this is special pleading as a writer, but you have to keep telling the truth even when it's unpopular. And a lot of times you look back, like we go back and we read James Baldwin now, and we kind of appreciate him and we quote him, but he was at points in his life remarkably unpopular because he kept telling the truth. And I think he used the language of witness. And so I do believe that even in the midst of all of the things that are happening, someone has to be there to go, this is actually crazy. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that the continued, to, the, the continued conversion of the imagination through art and literature and writing remains important.
2: Well, this has been fantastic. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Thank you so much to our panelists for really engaging in the conversation. <laughs>
0: Renee DiResta is the technical research manager at Stanford Internet Observatory, which studies abuse and information technologies. Previously, she was the director of research at Yonder and a founder at Haven. She's also the author of The Hardware Startup and a contributor at Wired and The Atlantic. Esau McCauley is an assistant professor of the New Testament at Wheaton College, focusing on Pauline theology and the intersection of race, Christian identity, and justice. He is also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and the author of Reading While Black, African American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, which was Christianity Today's 2020 Book of the Year. David French is a senior editor at The Dispatch and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. Previously, he was a senior writer for National Review and a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. Jane Koston is the host of The Argument podcast and an opinion writer at The New York Times, and previously, she was a politics reporter at Vox Media and other outlets. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.